Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. What is Islam? Now, perhaps you consider yourself an educated, knowledgeable person of the world. I'd like to think that I am. Perhaps you read several newspapers, watch news programs, scan the internet for news, all to help you be aware of the issues and trends which shape the world in which you live. Now stop to consider for a moment that there are somewhere north of 1.5 billion adherents of Islam in the world today. Sadly, for most of us in the Christian West, we know little about the second most popular faith in the world, other than what we think we're learning as we watch television shows and movies, or perhaps we hear the rumors that some misinformed person is spreading on Facebook. If we're going to be educated and knowledgeable people of the world, shouldn't we know more than we do about Islam? This episode is my hope to increase my own knowledge as I do research for this podcast, and my offering to bring you along for the journey. So let's start with a quiz to see our starting knowledge. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions, actually 10 questions with a bonus one at the end, and I'll give you the answer right afterwards to see how much we know about Islam. First, what does the word Islam mean? It means to surrender. What does the word Muslim mean? It means one who surrenders to God. What are the two major denominations within Islam? Sunni and Shia. And the vast majority of Muslims in the world are Sunni. What's the language of the Quran? Arabic. How many times a day do Muslims pray? The answer to that one is five. What do Muslims say about Jesus? They say that he was a prophet. Who revealed the Quran to Muhammad? The angel Gabriel. Why is Jerusalem important to Muslims? It's the site they understand that Muhammad ascended to heaven. What's the place all Muslims are supposed to make a pilgrimage to at least once in their lifetime? Mecca. In what country is Mecca found? Saudi Arabia. So here's the bonus question. Name two of the three countries with the largest total Muslim population. So here we go again. Name two of the three countries with the largest total Muslim population. The three countries with the largest Muslim population in the world are Indonesia, Pakistan, India. Okay, as I was doing research on this one, it totally blew my mind. Of the top five countries with the largest Muslim population, none are in the Middle East. They are, in descending order, Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Nigeria. These five countries alone count for almost 50% of the world Muslim population. The entire Middle East is just slightly over 20% of the Muslim population. Okay, quiz time is over. Now we can move on. 
When I was a kid, I remember being told that stored away somewhere, I think I was told it was the Smithsonian, there was a ruler. Obviously, it was three feet long, and it was the ruler against which all other rulers are measured. I later discovered it was not at the Smithsonian, but at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And it isn't a yardstick, but a bronze yard technically referred to as bronze yard number 11. Either way, it makes sense, right? If we are all going to use a common thing as a measure, then we have to be sure that we're talking about the same distance. So there has to be a standard. This is an issue to be addressed in the science of weights and measurements, but it is an equally a problem for religion when we're studying our ancient texts. How do we ensure that everyone is getting the same thing from them? And I'll tell you an interesting story to make the point from our common Jewish and Christian history. One of the challenges for Jews and for Christians alike is that we place a great deal of importance on our ancient texts, and the problem comes for us when we realize that none of the original texts exist. Whether we're talking about the Christian New Testament or the Old Testament, also known as the Hebrew Scripture, there are no existing first editions for any of them. And the copies that do exist were all copied by hand. The modern printing press didn't exist for many, many, many centuries to come. Each time they were copied, there was the possibility of an error or an edit being introduced into the words. So when scholars set out to create, say, a new translation of the Bible, they have to sit down with multiple ancient texts and decide which is more likely to be the closest to the original language. Often, when they come to differences between source texts, the choice is not difficult because there is an accepted consensus amongst the scholars. But upon occasion, it's not clear. So the person doing the translation will add a footnote. Now, I don't know about Jewish manuscripts that are read in services, but I do know and have some knowledge of the Christian Bible and various translations. If you're a Christian, own a Bible, and have ever ventured into the footnotes, you will occasionally see a citation for a different ancient text with a different word. For example, Isaiah 7.14 in the Revised Standard Version says, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. There's a footnote next to the words young woman, and at the bottom of the page, it says that the, now these are all in capitals, LXX, translates as the virgin. This lets you know where one text says young woman, another says virgin. My point in drawing your attention to all of this is to bring focus to those three capital letters, L-X-X. And in truth, these letters are not a word, but a shorthand used by scholars to refer to something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a word meaning 70. Thus, L-X-X are the Roman numerals for 70. And the Septuagint played a very important role in Jewish and Christian history. At the time Jesus lived, there were many Jews scattered all over the place, not just living in Israel. This group of dispersed Jews is known as the Diaspora, many of whom no longer spoke or read Hebrew, the language of their ancient texts. But regardless of the area they lived in, they, for the most part, all spoke Greek. So the texts were translated from Hebrew into Greek for them. 
Now, the name comes from an interesting story. According to lore, the Hebrew language texts were given to 70 independent translators. And when they were finished, their translators were, their translations were compared to each other, and all of them agreed down to the tiniest detail. Now, why is this story important? Because the story was a way to validate the authenticity of the Septuagint. It was a way Jewish people made sure that there weren't second-class citizens within their midst just because they couldn't read Hebrew. Now, if I'm going to talk about Islam, why have I spent so much time beginning with the texts found within the Bible? Because there's a tendency to see other faiths and their elements in a one-to-one correlation to our own. If you're Christian, then you may well think of Muslims and think, oh yes, the Quran is their Bible, and Muhammad is their equivalent to Jesus, and Ramadan, that's the equivalent of maybe Lent. Although on the surface, the correlation among these similar items and between faiths seems close, there are significant differences. First, if you were to tell a Muslim that you have read the Quran in English, they might not say it, but their thought may well be, then you haven't read the Quran. A number of years ago, a group from my church took a tour of the local mosque, and our tour guide made this very point. The Quran isn't simply written in Arabic. They can't be separated from each other. Quran is not only seen as the word of God, but Arabic is the medium for the word to be spoken and shared. Imagine, as an American, you travel to a foreign country, and they told you in their study of American culture they made apple pie. But unfortunately, they didn't have any apples available, so they used a local fruit instead. You would think to yourself, well, that may have been interesting. It may have even been delicious, but it wasn't apple pie. You have to have the right ingredients to call it apple pie. The Quran and Arabic are inextricably linked for most Muslims. Also, Muhammad is not the equivalent of Jesus. Muhammad is a prophet. For them, he's the greatest of the prophets, but he is not similar to how we Christians view Jesus. I was taught one time a very interesting perspective. When we in Christianity talk about the incarnate Word of God, we're speaking of Jesus. A better analogy for those of the Muslim faith is that the Quran for them is the incarnate Word of God. Remember several years ago when a person in Florida announced that he was going to burn a Quran? Remember how upset Muslims were across the world? Doesn't their reaction make more sense when you understand the importance of the Quran for them? Most of us who are not Muslim know just a couple of facts about the faith. For instance, you might know that they pray at set times every day. Often we'll see pictures in the news during their holy season of Ramadan with large groups of men kneeling on the floor of a mosque, all lined up in neat rows. And this is memorable because it's so different from what those of us in the Christian faith are accustomed to. You also might know that Muslims fast during Ramadan. And both of these traditions, the prayers at set times and the fasting, are contained within the five pillars of Islam. These are the five elements considered mandatory by all Muslims to be considered devout. Now, 
before you say, wait, I know a Muslim who doesn't do those things. There are certainly people who consider themselves to be Muslim who do not strictly follow these, just as there are Christians and Jews who do not follow the practices of their traditions. And in every faith, there are non-practicing people who consider themselves members of the faith, probably more for cultural identity reasons than spiritual motivation. But exceptions aside, the five pillars are the basic behavioral expectations of being Muslims. The five pillars are very important to the faith, and they're also really interesting and helpful to those of us wanting to learn more about Islam. Let's begin talking about the five pillars in this way. If you're a Christian, name the basic actions that all Christians must make a part of their routine to be considered faithful. And before you name them, make sure that any you name would be agreed upon by all sects, all denominations of Christianity. Now, if you're having trouble, it's not surprising. I would think you do have trouble naming those. One of the remarkable things about the five pillars of Islam is that they are universally agreed upon across all of Islam, and that they must be performed by any Muslim in order to be leading a devout, God-focused life. So because they are so universally accepted, let's take a look at them because they'll give us a glimpse into Islam. First, in apology for the words I'm about to say, I am sure I'm going to mispronounce some of these words. And I will say, I did a lot of research on pronunciation and found that the internet, you will not be surprised, offered inconsistent guidance on almost every single word. So if you're Muslim, my apology in advance. Each pillar of the five pillars has a one-word name. The first pillar is shahada. The meaning of this word is roughly testimony. It is, in essence, the basic Muslim creed. A person becomes a Muslim by professing this basic statement of belief. I should note that Muslims are very clear about the fact that saying the words alone doesn't make you Muslim. It is saying them with intent and conviction. The statement of belief is fairly simple. The words are, I testify that there is no God but God. And I testify that Muhammad is the messenger of God. The second pillar is Salah. The word means prayer or invocation. Salah is a formal ritualized prayer performed facing Mecca at five specified times each day. And the prayers are performed at dawn, noon, afternoon, evening, and night. It consists of of a sequence of recitations and bodily positions, including standing, bowing, kneeling, and kneeling down with your forehead touching the ground. Each of these five times of prayer begins with the first pillar, the basic profession of faith, shahada. A Muslim can do these prayers at home or wherever they are, but there is a preference for first being at a mosque and second in community if it is possible. Also, the noonday prayers on Friday at the mosque are normally special, 
and often, most often, will have a sermon or lesson spoken by the imam in Arabic. The third pillar is called zakat. Zakat is expected to be an obligatory charitable contribution, theoretically due annually from every Muslim, at the rate of about 2.5% of your liquid assets and income-producing property. Zakat supports charitable works as well as the promotion of Islam, and the word literally means that which purifies. Zakat is considered a way to purify all one's income and wealth from the admittedly worldly ways of acquisition. This giving is not seen as voluntary, but is an expectation. Matter of fact, many of the sites about Islam that I looked at, written by Muslims, referred to this giving as a tax. I really found that interesting. I know of no Christian churches or denominations, of which I'm aware, where the members would be comfortable thinking of financial giving as a tax, much less calling it by that name. One of the interesting guidelines also for the zakat is that payment must be in kind. And this means that if you are wealthy and have lots of money, then you need to pay a portion of your wealth as your zakat. If a person doesn't have much money, but they have other resources, like they have produce that they grow on a farm, then you give of that. And if you don't have resources and you don't have money, then you're expected to give with service or charitable acts. Now, before moving on to the fourth pillar, let me say a bit about Ramadan because it plays a part in talking about the fourth pillar. Ramadan is the holy season for all Muslims. And of all the attempted parallels trying to find similar elements between Islam and Christianity, comparing Ramadan to the ways some Christians observe Lent is probably the most apt, though there are some striking differences. Ramadan is observed during the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, and because it's based on the lunar calendar and being observed from one crescent moon until the next crescent moon, it can last for 29 or 30 days. Now remember that for Christians who observe Lent, it's a season of fasting, self-discipline, and preparation that leads to the holiest week in the Christian calendar, Holy Week, which culminates with the holiest day in the Christian calendar, Easter, the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. Ramadan is a holy season of preparation leading up to the final 10 days of Ramadan, which are considered particularly special, holy, and worth extra emphasis. It is during these 10 days that Lahatul Koda, or Night of Destiny, is observed. This is arguably the most holy of Muslim days of observance because it is the day in which God sent the angel Gabriel to reveal the first verses of the Quran to Muhammad. Notice, for Christians, it's all about the revelation of God as seen through the life of Christ, and for Islam, the focus is on the revelation of God as received and revealed through the Quran. The fourth pillar is Psalm, and it means fasting. It is expected of all Muslims who are capable to fast to do so from sunup until sundown during the days of Ramadan. Most of us know this about Islam, even if we didn't know the name. The fasting during the day is extremely prescribed, lasting from dawn to dusk each day, and 
Muslims are not supposed to eat, drink, anything. Now, it's my personal tradition to fast on two days of the Christian calendar. So I fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. I do allow myself water or even tea if it isn't sweetened. But the Muslim definition of fasting is so much stricter. Consuming anything by mouth is not done. Even a sip of water, even a puff of cigarette is considered to be breaking the fast. This fasting is considered to be arduous enough that in countries where Islam is the primary faith, they don't want to have people undermining the fast by eating in public. So it's common to have public eating in Islamic nations, public eating to be illegal during the days of Ramadan. Now, people may still eat if they need to, or if they aren't Muslim, they just may not do it publicly. And frequently in those countries, restaurants are closed during the day. Now, this is intended as a time of spiritual renewal. The fast is ended each day with prayers and often a community meal. It's not unusual for the first thing to be eaten to break the fast is a sip of water followed by some dates. And that's following tradition of how Muhammad broke his fast. In the morning, a meal is normally eaten just before sunrise, which is intended to give the person fasting enough sustenance to help get through the day. Children up to the age of puberty are not expected to fast, nor are the sick, nor are the pregnant. The fifth pillar is called Hajj. The word literally translates as heading to a place to visit, but in this case, the word means a pilgrimage to Mecca. At least once in his or her life, if physically and financially capable, each Muslim is to make the pilgrimage to Mecca during the 12th month of the Islamic calendar. Although the Hajj is associated with the Prophet Muhammad, the actual rituals performed are thought to be much older and date back to those first performed by Abraham, including circling the sacred shrine Kaaba, standing on the plain of Arafat, and offering a sacrifice. Now, my purpose for this podcast was mostly to extend my own education and then to share it with you. And it also seems appropriate to pull this together now since Muslims are in the midst of Ramadan. It began on April 23rd and will end on May 23rd. I am keenly aware that most Muslims I have met have been truly wonderful and delightful people. Most Muslims I see portrayed on television are homicidal maniacs seething with rage and aggression. And I'll have to say that when what I'm experiencing in life and what I'm being told by others don't necessarily coincide, I find myself motivated to seek and to learn. Finally, I'm going to end with a prayer from the Quran. My motivation for sharing it is simple. When I first read it, I thought, wow. That doesn't seem different from something I might hear a fellow Christian say. So I leave you with this prayer. All praises belong to God, Lord of the universe, the beneficent, the merciful, and master of the day of judgment. You alone we do worship. And from you alone we do seek assistance. Guide us to the right path the path of those to whom you have granted blessings, 
those who are neither subject to your anger nor have gone astray. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Please feel free to get in touch with me through email, or I invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just remember that both are SkyPilot with three T's, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. So my email is skypilot at gmail.com, and Twitter is at SkyPilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs>